Um, so today you should be able to be able to list three sections of the IEP when we're done and explain the connections between the different parts of present levels, which you'll learn what present levels is, and explain how present levels drives the rest of the IEP, which is one of the most important things that you'll learn today. And there'll be other things you learn, but those, if you can learn that today, that'll be helpful in all meetings. It doesn't sound like a lot, but it is. <laughs> um, so what I've got here, and it's actually on page two of your handouts, is the IEP process. And if you've been in class with me before, this is the process that I use to explain it. And basically, a child is identified typically through parents and evaluated. Um, is the child eligible for services under IDEA? And there are certain criteria for that. And if the answer is yes, then an IEP is developed. If the answer is no, then a child is placed on a 504 and they have accommodations, but not services. And if you disagree, then you can escalate. So that's the basic process of the IEP. And we're gonna look at the, the IEP today, but I just wanted to make sure we were all in the same place on the process. So where we are right now would be that the student has been identified the student has been evaluated, and that could be for an initial or for a triennial, or you're in year two after the evaluation, but an evaluation has been done. And the student has been determined to qualify for an IEP under at least one specific disability category. So I say one specific because you can, be, you can actually qualify. You have to qualify under at least one, but you can qualify under more than one. And listed below are the disability categories. The, um, and the other thing I wanna make sure that I tell you is that these disability categories are um, not medical. So you can have a child that is medically um, diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder. Let me do this way. Under autism spectrum disorder, but that person may or may not qualify for an IEP under a disability, under that category. So there, I will have a link at the end for all these disability categories where you can go and get, look at the form that gets filled out in an IEP meeting and understand how that gets done. So we've, all that's been completed and now we're gonna write an IEP. So the other thing I wanna talk about is that there's a timeline for all of this. If you're in the initial stages of getting an IEP, then once you sign a consent form or the GAL signs a consent form or whoever has educational rights signs a consent form, they have 60 days to complete an evaluation. And that's true for the triennial too, or any time you ask for a reevaluation. And then once the eligibility has been determined, which usually they do that in an evaluation eligibility meeting, then the school district, school or district has 30 days to complete the IEP. So those are timetables that are mandated by state and feds. Any questions on that? Okay. So and you can request um, that your child be evaluated. Yes, you can request an evaluation. It should be in writing and it should have specific terminology. And so if you need that at any time, you can 
call me and ask me. I think it's on the... It's in part one as it's well. It's in part one. So and part, part one, it's on there. Part one that we're referring to, guys, is actually available on demand in our classroom. It's Navigating Special Education, um, and this is part 2.0. So at, you may, after this, want to go back and look at part one for those specifics. Right. Depending on what you learned today, you might want to go back and refresh. Um, so I do have this in part one also, but I'm going to make a note, and it is in your handouts on page three. I do want to make a note that I have updated it. So I've added, sorry, I forget I have two screens to work with today. Um, I have added this piece right here. So it starts with an IEP meeting is scheduled. The parents prepare for the IEP meeting. I didn't used to have that in there. So now I've got that in there. The school develops a draft IEP. The parents review the draft. An IEP meeting is held. The school updates the IEP and sends an updated copy to the parents. The parents review the latest version of the IEP. Do you feel that your child's needs are being met? If the answer is yes, then it gets implemented. If the answer is no, then schedule another IEP meeting to talk to them. One of the things that you note is that I you get a review of the IEP, a draft IEP. When you know when your child's IEP is going to take place, and we'll find out, we're going to go into that in just a minute on how to know when that is, then you should request a draft copy of the IEP a week before the IEP meeting. That gives you time to read it before you go to the meeting. That way you can prepare, you can know what questions you want to ask, and you're not blindsided when you go in. And by all means, if you are doing an evaluation or reevaluation, make sure that they do not schedule it so it's the evaluation, eligibility, and the IEP all in one meeting. Sometimes they try to do that, especially in elementary. Don't let them do that. Say, I will only do the evaluation eligibility, and then I want a draft of the IEP a week before the IEP meeting. And you should ask for a draft of the evaluation report a week before the evaluation meeting. Any questions? Okay. It's hard when I can't see your faces, so I'm doing the best I can to know. I know. It's more fun to interact in person. Yeah. So usually I look at people's faces and go, okay, somebody doesn't get it. All right. So how do you prepare for an IEP meeting? So one of the things you want to do, I just said, request a draft of the IEP seven days before the meeting. Determine who you think essential members of the team, IEP team would be. And we're going to talk about that in a minute as to who those people are. But I want to put it all on one list for you so that it was all in one place. So you, when you get ready to do it, you can hopefully you can use this handout as a tool to kind of walk you through the process when it's time. That was my goal. So you will be able to determine who the essential members are. We're, you're going to think through the student profile, which I'm going to show you in just a second, the student profile. Review the draft of the IEP. Do it at least two days before the IEP meeting. That way you can have time to write down your, com you can write down your comments on um, either on the document or in a separate document, depending on how extensive. I always like to put my notes on the document because that way I can refer to it in the meeting and be right where everybody else is. And there's a couple of tools where you can do it online, but um, I never rely on online tools in a meeting. So um, I then print it. So 
just so you know, there's different ways to do it, but just make sure that you have it so that you can walk through it with during the meeting. And then decide if you want your child to attend the IEP meeting. They will try to encourage that. If you have a child that you do not think should go to an IEP meeting, by all means, tell the school that they are not invited. Um, my daughter, I had her attend one IEP meeting and she cried for three days. So that was the end of her attendance at IEP meetings. Um, my daughter, so let me give you a little history about me, those of you that don't know me. Um, I have two kids, both adopted, both through foster adopt program. So I was a foster parent, um, but for the purpose of adoption and both of them came from very hard backgrounds. My daughter, especially um, totally neglected and um, she has severe mental health issues. And my son has twice exceptional, which means he's gifted as well as has a disability. And his primary is ADHD. They both had reactive attachment disorder. So I have been through all of that and worked with them. And um, both my children were violent, but especially my daughter. So a lot of my knowledge comes from working with them and then taking on clients. So I started with my daughter in 1999 after she'd been in a mental hospital already for a week. She was in second grade and the school refused to even evaluate her um, and even consider an IEP. So I went to a class on IEPs. I hired an educational advocate like me and got her on an IEP. So it's Lots better than it was in 1999, way, 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 way better, um, but it's still um, not an easy process. So once you get it, so if you have questions about any of that, feel free to ask me. Um, and then take a day, the reason why I say two days before the meeting, take a day to calm down or celebrate. I say, I added celebrate because sometimes people get really good IEPs. Typically, though, they're pretty upset after they read their IEP, after they read their child's IEP. So give yourself time to calm down so you're not going into the meeting with lots of emotions. And getting the draft early will help with that because, um, you, as I always say, you get more flies with honey than you do with our bees or whichever it is with honey than you do with vinegar. So being calm in a meeting is important. And always feel free in a meeting to take time for yourself. So if you're getting upset or getting concerned or feeling yourself dysregulation, so say I need a, a bio break and go to the restroom, take a break and then come back. Don't ever hesitate to do that. That's always an okay thing to do. Any questions on preparing for an IEP meeting? Okay. No, always stop me. So student profile, this is put together um, based on a student profile profile that was developed by the Federal Department of Education. And then I modified it and I'm sorry for the small print, but it is better in your handouts. It's on page four and five. And the purpose of this is to make sure that you really think about what your child needs. Who is your child? What do they like to do? How do they work better? What have you found calms them down? What have you found amps them up? What have you found just works? Um, and how they like to learn? 
Do they like to learn through videos? Have you found that they can watch the Nature Channel and remember everything they see? But if you try to talk to them about it, they shut down. You know, how do they like to learn? What are their strengths? You know, it may be that they're an athlete and they're doing awesome in soccer in summertime. Of course, this summer doesn't count, but maybe some summers we'll be able to do soccer again. Um, and, and maybe they're really good at drama. Maybe they participate in the drama plays at church or in the local um, drama thing. So any specific examples that you can provide? Any successes, no matter how small? For children who have autism, maybe they learned how to tie their shoes. Um, maybe they learned how to make something in the microwave oven. It doesn't have to be big to be a success but you wanna celebrate and be able to talk about those successes in the IEP meeting. Um, what well, are your can child- I just say to Roxanne, I think what's, that's so important because a lot of times we're, we're looking at our children only based on their scholastic achievements. Right. And this pulls in the whole person, which can really help determine what services and supports are best for them. Right. And that's really important because um, you really want to make sure that I'm going to make this bigger. Yeah, yeah, I remembered how to do that. Is that helping? <laughs> and, and it's sometimes it's hard because if you have children like mine who were violent and angry and difficult to get along with, finding successes was really hard sometimes. Um, for my kids, it could have been as simple as we all made it through a TV show without anybody having a meltdown. <laughs> so, but you got to celebrate those sex successes. And you guys, as, as experienced foster parents, probably know that better than I did. Um, and you want to look at what your child's diagnoses are. If you have a letter from an MD or a PhD or a speech language therapist, um, then you want to um, bring those with you and make a copy. If you have an evaluation that the county paid for or um, you got um, for your child, you want to make sure you take, give that a copy to the school. And that can be helpful because it's hard for the school to argue with a doctor. They can argue with you all day long, but it's really hard to argue with a doctor. And then, what are your child's greatest um, challenges? So where are you finding the hard things? Is it hard to get them to brush their teeth? Is it hard to get them to get up in the morning? Which is really important because that might help determine schedule. Um, and I had a client where he could not get out of bed, just could not get out of bed. And come to find out he was allergic basically to the world. He was allergic to almonds, so they couldn't use almond oil. He was allergic to what everything. And so when they finally got his nutrition under control and we got him on a 504 and got the school to support him, then he started soaring and he stopped having wake up problems. But the school was actually going to put them on truancy when they hired me to step in. So schools sometimes don't understand that a child has issues versus a child is being, that the family or the child is being uncooperative. So your job is to make sure they understand that this is not a choice, 
that this is part of the child's trauma or background or whatever the reasons are or disability okay so that's a hard thing to do sometimes but the more specific examples you have the better it the easier it is and again, I'm sorry to keep interrupting, Roxanne, but no, I, that's so important because a lot of times we think, oh, the school knows more than I do about these things. But actually, as far as trauma histories, often the school doesn't understand that. E even uh, the special education folks, um, when I went for our little guy, the, the special ed teacher asked me, could you explain more about what you mean by the prenatal trauma and the early childhood trauma? trauma. So be, be open to explaining a little bit about that because sometimes they, they actually don't know. Yes. And it's real important. Um, we had a school psychologist that didn't believe in reactive attachment disorder. So she wouldn't let me give any information to the teachers on reactive attachment disorder, which was ridiculous. Luckily we left that school, but um, there's, but when she was in third, third grade, fourth grade, eh, one of those two, um, we went through th fourth grade. We went through 10 medicine changes in a year. And at that point she was diagnosed with bipolar and um, early childhood bipolar. And because she would get really yell and get angry, we actually went into the school and explained to her classmates what was going on so that they could understand that this was not because she didn't like them or hated them or anything. It was her disability. So sometimes it's really important that you train the teachers because they don't and trauma is really hard. You will get schools where they say, oh, we're trauma informed. Let me tell you, trauma informed does not mean that they know what to do. So you want to ask, well, what training did you get? Did you go to TBRI classes? Did you, what, you know, what is your training and what skills do you have to deal with kids with trauma? Because it's not whether or not you know what trauma is, but whether or not you know how to work with children with trauma. So thanks Renee, that was a good step in there. Um, and then what are your child's needs? So the school doesn't have to give you a Cadillac. They only have to give you a Chevy. The Chevy has to be made up of what the child needs, not what would be best for the child. So you want to look at your terminology and you want to make sure that you use the word need, not the word it would be nice if, or it would be better for my child if, or it's best when. No, it needs to be worded, my child needs this information presented in a visual format. My child needs. Okay, the terminology is really important. And then you want to talk about your child's dreams. What's your current vision for their future? At one point, our current vision for our, our vision for our daughter was that she could work at um, King Supers and stock shelves. That was our vision. Um, that's not where she is now, but that's a whole nother story. Um, but just looking at what they can do for themselves, what they can't, what are issues, what aren't, again, but the dreams are real important. What do they hope for? Are they planning, do they wanna be a, a writer? Do they wanna be a astronaut, whatever? And this is early, not even when they're 
and transition, which is 15 years old. But even for the early kids, because a lot of times for the school needs to understand that kids with disabilities have dreams too. So it's really important that you talk about that. And then I added this in here. So this is new, e-learning versus in-person learning. And what is the same or different for your child? Most of the school districts are going to allow parents to, in their IEPs, are going to have two sections. And it'll mostly be in accommodations and modifications. So, and we'll talk about those sections. But there will be one for e-learning and one for in-person. And that's important where we've got hybrid models, we've got in-person models, and we've got 100% e-learning e models. So, and we never know when they're gonna all change to 100% e-learning. If the numbers go up, the governor could step in and say schools are closed except for e-learning. So it's real important that you know where your child learns best and what works in what environment. And that's why I have the goals or accommodations. We'll talk about that when we get there. And how does, does your child need to be connected to other students? And how would that happen in e-learning environment? How much regression have you seen? It's really important. They should be testing every student, especially IEP students, for regression. And it shouldn't be just an iReady test, okay? It needs to be some kind of standardized evaluation. And where would they do that? Can they do it online? And what are your ideas about how the school can help your child make up for that regression? Are they just gonna say, oh, we'll see where they are at the end of the year? Not a good answer. Or are they gonna provide extra help? So those are really important questions to ask this year. And then other helpful information, any relevant information, healthcare needs that haven't been addressed already, changes in medication, side effects, all those kind of things would be helpful information. That's a lot to go through, so give yourself some time and space to do it. <laughs> and then, but then once you have it done, the cool thing is you can just update it every year. And if you have your child and then you have to um, relinquish, not relinquish, but that child has to go to another foster family, that document can follow them. And that's a good thing to be able to do because then that foster mom doesn't have to start over, foster family doesn't have to start over with the school piece. Yes, even out of district, the IEP follows the child. Yes, the IEP is federal. So even if they move to Alaska, that IEP goes with them or Puerto Rico, their territory, so it covers that too. So any questions on the student profile? Okay. So now we're gonna go into the IEP. So in your handouts, we are now on page six. So um, actually this next chart is not in your IEP, but the remaining pages, I wanna point out it's in your handout. The rest of the pages are about the different sections of the IEP and how they're related. And then there's sample pages from the IEP and you can actually use those to compare to your child's IEP. And we're gonna do that today. If you have your child's IEP, you'll be able to compare it and find the information I'm talking about. So this should be like hands-on as well as learning new information. So we're gonna look at the sections of the IEP and um, what I'd like you to do, and 
you're going to have to unmute for this, which will be kind of fun. So everybody can just yell out. So maybe um, Renee can do an unmute for everybody. Sure. So what we're going to do is we're going to talk about each of these sections and whether or not you think it's procedural or the student drive, it's, um, drive student success or it's just a legal thing that we have to do. And I am going to try to, let's see if I can make this happen. Did you unmute yourself? Yep, check it out as we go. So type of meeting, do you think that's procedural, drive student success or is a legal process? I think anybody can yell procedural? out. Procedural? Procedural. Yep, it is procedural. I'm trying to meet, mute, unmute you guys, so feel free to unmute yourselves if you want to yeah. shout yeah. out. Dates of meetings, is that procedural, drive student success, or legal? I mean, I think it would definitely partly drive student success. Legal. It helps. What, Nadia? Maybe legal as well? It's legal as well. Everything, we could say everything's legal, right? Because it all has to be in the meeting. Nice it's pretty job. much procedural. Okay. Because the dates of the meeting can change. If your kid needs something else, you just ask for another meeting. Okay. Okay. So student and family information, what do you think? I would, I would say legal. It's legal. Yeah, it's legal and procedural, but mostly legal. And then procedural safeguards. Obviously. Procedural. <laughs> <laughs> it does have some legal information and you probably do want to look at it at least once. The problem I always have with procedural safeguards is that they pretty much st start at where you're fighting with the school. So I'm, I really want you to get to the point where you get the information without having to use those. Okay. And then IEP participants. Those are people who attend the meeting. What do you think? Drive student success. Uh-uh. Oh, I would agree with that. Okay. I would have so, said all. What? I, I would have said all of them. Yeah, it does kind of impact all of them, but it's mostly procedural because it just really states who set, comes to the meeting. It doesn't say whether or not they actually contribute. Gotcha. Okay. <laughs> well, I guess it'd be pointless then if they're not contributing. <laughs> exactly. Right. And sometimes you have people that come and they're just there to check off the box and say, I attended the meeting. Okay. Because legally they have to attend, but they don't have to contribute. So it is a little bit of a legal process. So I will check that one too. All right. Now we're to present levels of academic achievement and functional performance, including input from parent and student. Wow. That's a mouthful. What do you think? Okay, then that still goes with the drive student success, I'd say. Yeah, big time. <laughs> Backwards, but yeah. <laughs> drive like, wow. student success big time. And we'll talk about how and what to do with that, okay? Consideration of special factors. That's where do you need transportation, learning, uh, uh, communication devices, um, technology to learn, those kind of things. So procedural, well, I mean... It is procedural, but it is very so, much driving students. Yeah, success. for sure. Because if you don't get some of those, they aren't going to be successful. Annual goals. Legal. Student success. It drives student success, and it is legal. The, the biggest part on this one is this is the only place you'll ever get this. 
through 12 and earlier, earlier has some goals, but K through 12 is really where you get goal driven education with an IEP. It's the only place you get it. So it's really important um, to make sure you have the right goals. We'll talk about that. Accommodations and modifications. Oh, success, right? Yeah, student success. So accommodations, we'll talk about those and what the difference is in a little bit. Extended school year. So do they need to go to summer school? Legal? Uh, kind of, but it really does drive student success sometimes. It is legal. There are a bunch of legal stuff with it, and we'll talk about what it means. State and district assessments. Legal. Legal. Yeah, we don't really always care. And you can opt out. So okay. don't ever think that your kid has to participate in an evaluate in a student and just state and district assessments. If it stresses them out, don't do it. The school won't like you, but that's okay. Um, service delivery statement. What? Can you say that again? Service delivery. Ray, was that you? Yeah, I did. I think he was talking out of line. It had nothing to do with oh, okay. what he was saying. <laughs> so Sorry, Roxanne, I was just going to tell you the opting out of testing or the assessments. Yeah. yeah, the school will not like you. I did that for my son, and they pretty much expelled him the next year. Well, that's illegal. So. <laughs> they, they found their ways, but yeah, it was he was severely punished for it. Yeah, and that's wrong. That's just totally wrong. Oh, yeah. I used to kind of even take my daughter out on the weeks that they even prepared. When they used to prepare for them, it was a whole week of preparation for evaluating. I said, no, nope, she's not going to be there this week. Oh, interesting. Um, and I would just say she was sick. <laughs> Those um, are the perks of knowing what you can and cannot do. <laughs> See? Yeah. For sure. And it's also, I mean, retaliation is illegal. So if they are retaliating, then you need to escalate it because that is a violation of civil rights. Um, so that's important to like deal with. Service delivery statement is where it tells you how much time is going to be spent with your child and where. So this is driving student success and it's also legal and it's procedural. So it's a whole bunch of stuff. So we will go through that. And then re recommended placement is, that one drives student success big time. And it's also a legal process and also difficult. So we'll talk about that a little bit. And then prior written notice is documentation of the decisions that were made. So that is legal, legal. guessing, yeah. And it's a little bit procedural. So like if you get a notice of meeting, that has to be 10 days before the IEP meeting. That's the minimum amount of time they're supposed to give you. Uh -huh. um, that is procedural. And if they say no to something, they're supposed to write it up in a prior written notice. So that's legal and procedural. So does that help a little bit on knowing all the different sections and how they drive student success? So yes. you notice that there's some yeah. things that do drive student success and some things that are mixed and some things that are just procedural. Okay. 
It's and helpful it's, too because it can kind of tell you where to focus a lot of your efforts, I would yes, guess. And yeah. it is it does. The interesting thing is that um, the in the past, IEPs were only evaluated on whether or not they checked the boxes. Did they follow the correct procedures? And about four years ago, it was changed that they had to not only do procedural, but they had to make sure that success was happening, that the IEP was actually making a difference. So schools are now and districts are now measured on 50% procedural and 50% student success. So it is starting to be a bigger issue than it used to be, which is sad that it's taken this long, but that's where we are. Okay, so how does it work? So again, we have, I put this chart and it's in your handouts. And IEP, it should be developed independent of the school that's writing the IEP. So when they're writing the IEP, they can't say, well, we can't do that because we don't have it in our school. It has to be written for what the child needs, not for what the school can provide, okay? And the evaluation data, where's my marker? Let me get you a laser pointer. Here we go. The evaluation data drives the present levels. That drives the student needs and impact of disability. That drives the goals, modifications, and accommodations and modifications. That then drives the service delivery statement, which drives the recommended placement. So if you had a, value, a bad evaluation, what's gonna happen? Chime in, everybody. Well, but that's gonna affect every other level. Exactly. If you have a yeah. bad evaluation, there's no point in going further because you're not gonna get anything else done correctly, right? <laughs> so if you have poor evaluation, the rest gets written wrong. I just had a client this year that the school did a really poor evaluation. They called me in after this happened. And because of that evaluation, they took away speech language and they took away mental health support. And this is a child as a foster child with trauma and has um, cognitive disability, intellectual disability. So guess what? The rest of it was kind of useless because yeah, it was sure. written inappropriately. Yeah. So now we're getting that redone. So that's why all of these different levels are really important is that you want to make sure if the present levels isn't written well, which is where your student, your student profile comes in, that information that's in your student profile should be in your present levels. If that doesn't have your stuff in it, then it can't drive the needs which can't drive the goals, which can't da 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 da. Does everybody get that now? Yep. Yeah. Okay. So a lot of times the school will focus on goals and accommodations and modifications and kind of kind of say, okay, well, your kid's great. We like working with them and here's their grades and we did an observation and then they'll go straight to, or they'll, and then they'll write maybe a sentence or two on student needs and then they'll go straight to goals, accommodations and modifications. That's really not the way it's supposed to work. Okay. Any questions on that? Lindsay just linked to the handouts, by the way, in the chat. 
guys. So if you're like frantically searching, like, oh, I really want this, this slide, no worries. It's, it's, in, the, it's in the classroom. It is yours. Okay. You'll be able to find it. No worries. So for now, just enjoy them on the screen. Ask any questions as you go, and you'll have a copy of them to keep. Yeah. Okay, any questions right now? All right, great. I'm looking at my time. It's, it always goes quicker, but I want to make sure we have plenty of time on the, the IEP. All right, we're now going to start the IEP part. So if you have your child's IEP handy and you can have it next to you, that would be awesome because um, you can look at it as we go. Got to take a drink of water. I'm not going to be able to talk. Thanks. Okay, so I'm gonna use my little magnifier again. So every IEP has the district's name on it. There's also the date of birth and legal name of the student. There's their identifier. So all the blue is mine, sorry, forgot to say that. All the blue is what I added, okay? So that you know what to look for in an IEP. It has the district address. So why does it have the district name and address and not the schools? The reason is because legally, the district is responsible for the IEP, not the school, which is an unfortunate thing because sometimes then schools don't take accountability. But that's the way the law is written right now, is that the districts are the sole owner of the, the power of the IEP. And that's why most your special ed teachers and service providers in your school are dual reporters. They report up through the principal. They also typically report up through the special ed department. So when you want to escalate to your, about your IEP, typically your school, your school administrators are not knowledgeable in IEP law or understand IEP. Neither are your gen ed teachers. The only people that are required by law to take classes in IEPs are your special ed teachers. So if you wanna escalate, always include somebody from the district. There's usually a district coordinator or liaison or assistant director or whatever, depending on your school district, that is responsible for that school and being the conduit up through the special education department in the district. So you wanna find out who that person is and every year it can change so that you can know who you need to escalate to if you need to. If you hire and have a foster care liaison in the meantime, what? I feel each school should have a foster care liaison in the meantime, I feel like. Well, there is um, a district. There a is district a, one. Okay. There is a district foster liaison. Okay. I've talked so that to, go ahead. Okay. So you can find out who that is by going to the CDE website. Um, there is it is there for every school district as to who they are. And the the thing is that typically what they're responsible for is making sure that if the student is supposed to stay in their home school, that that happens. If the student is supposed to get transportation from their new foster home, that that happens. But they are not responsible for ensuring that the IEP get implemented or updated. Does that make sense? Yeah. 
So there are some help, but not okay. as much as you would like. Um, okay, so now we're going to go to type of meeting. So this is a very important section. And this area explains what type of meeting will be held. So are you having your just annual? So IEPs have to be updated every year. That's requirement by law. There was a little fudging going on in the spring, but we're back on track now and all IEPs are supposed to be updated and every school district has a backlog. So they're working through their backlog and they should have a list of priorities getting it done. That doesn't mean you can't jump to the top of the list if you have an issue, but that's what's going on right now. So if it's an update, it's just an annual, then it'll probably be right here under this. And these are the types you will see. So it'll say initial eligibility meeting. Okay, so that would probably go right here. Initial IEP, right? So it'd be, you'd have initial eligibility meeting here, and then you'd have um, initial IEP over here, so under educational program. IEP review, that's your annual and a reevaluation. Um, so initial, th those two, the ones with the eligibility and reevaluation would go here and the others would be here. So sometimes they're in both places. That's not the important thing, the important, where it is, the important thing is what it says. Okay, so if it's an initial eligibility meeting, then that's determining whether or not the child is going to be on an IEP and an initial evaluation was done. If it's a, and then you have an if that if they are eligible, then you get an initial IEP. So there's different kinds of things that are happening. It could say IEP review. That's your annual. That can sometimes be very simple and easy, depending on how how severe your child's needs are. And then there's a reevaluation. You can ask for a reevaluation. Well, first of all, let me go. Yeah, you can ask for a reevaluation whenever you think your child needs it. Let's say over the summer you did the you the foster child went to residential for some reason, for some issue, or got a huge change in medication, or got a new diagnosis. Those things need to be considered in the IEP, and you might want to request a reevaluation. Or you're noticing things aren't working, and you don't know why, and it, they got tested two years ago, and it's not their three-year anniversary to get their evaluation. You can ask for a reevaluation. If you didn't like the evaluation, We'll talk about that. You can ask for either a reevaluation by the school or an independent educational evaluation. So there's lots of ways to get out of your evaluation stuff. IEPs, annuals. You do not have to wait for an annual to get the child's IEP updated. You can ask for an IEP. I used to meet almost every month with my child's IEP team because she had so many different needs that were varying every, all the time. And so sometimes you have to do that. And they weren't working with me. So then I had a meeting all the time. But hopefully you can get it to where you can have one once a year or maybe twice a year if you need to, if you've got a child that needs lots of support. Any, has everybody found that on their child's IEP? Anybody yes. can't find it? Okay. Dates of meetings. This is the next it's procedural, but it's important. It tells you when the next meeting is. So it'll, the bottom four are the initial. Those might be blank. If your child transferred from one school district to the other, sometimes the software does not pick up when the initial process started. That's not the important dates right now. It's important for you to know how long they've been on an IEP 
it's not necessarily important for the next meeting. The, the two dates that are, are the next eligibility meeting that says on or before, and the next review meeting, on or before. Can everybody find those? Anybody not find those dates? So look at your dates and it should tell you when it has to happen this school year. Does everybody see that? Yep. Okay. So does anybody have a date where the next um, and the next review meeting, sorry, the eligibility meeting may not be this year. It could be next couple of years. The next review meeting. I'll scare be for a minute. Yeah. Sorry, sorry, I didn't mean to confuse you. The next review meeting should be this year. So let me make this smaller so I can see it better. Um, so then if on the next review meeting, let me make sure I do this correctly because I always get it backwards. What do you do? Okay, so the next review meeting is that date before, no, is that date after the next eligibility meeting? So let's say the next review date is September, I mean, is October 30th, but the next eligibility meeting is September 30th. Does anybody have dates like that? I, let me see, I have April 23rd for next and then April 30th for the next eligibility. Okay, so the next eligibility is April 30th and the next review is April 1st. April 23rd. April 23rd. Okay. So basically that's okay because, oh, no, this is the 30th. Yeah, that's back. I mean, yeah. the <laughs> eligibility should be happening before the IEP. <laughs> so what they're going to do, what they're going to end up doing is doing her eligibility. They should be contacting you like in March or February. I would contact them in like February, March and say, you know, her eligibility reevaluation is due and make sure I get it a week before and because they need to get it done so they can, um, and it's gonna have to get done before the IEP, okay? But if you have one that's like six months apart, let's say I had this happen two years ago. So the child next of review meeting was in December. So, we did, the, we did the IEP. Their eligibility was August because they had been tested in the summer, which can happen if you have to. So they were tested in the summer, so it was August. So we were assuming, and he was moving into middle school. So we, the parents and I were assuming that his evaluation would be done by the middle school. I mean, by the high school, he's moving to high school. Oh, I see what you're saying. Okay. Yeah, because his date for the eligibility was in August. So we were thinking that it would get done by the high school. Right. What the middle school did is they pulled it up and they did it at the end of his middle school year, which was really a disservice to this kid who has high anxiety, who finally figured out how to fit in in middle school. They took him off an IEP and put him on a 504 going into an unknown environment and a high school. And so needless to say, there were some problems at the beginning of the next year. So you really want to look at it and go, I just want to move up the evaluation and have it in, you know, if you want to move it, then move it, but move it to where you want it. <laughs> Does that make sense? 
So either request it to be like in before the IEP. Don't write two IEPs in a school year is what I'm saying, okay? Because if the dates are like that, you would write two IEPs in one calendar year, which is way too much work for everybody. So yeah, that if, you makes want sense, it to be, yeah. if you're transitioning from one school to the next and anxiety is an issue versus having, so there's two things to consider. Do you want the evaluation to be done by somebody who knows your child, which is the school that they're in now, or do you want the IEP to be done by the school that, I mean, the evaluation done by the school that doesn't know them? And if you have a kid with situational anxiety like this kid, you probably want the evaluation done after they're in a new environment, not before. You see where I'm getting at? Some subtleties here. That's really good to know because like we just, so my son is going into sixth grade and we just had his IEP meeting at the end of his fifth grade year and they wrote it for, well, he's going into middle school, so we need to consider this, this, and this. But I was like, the struggle he has in those transitions, I don't think anybody is truly aware of. Right. Yeah. And there should be a transition meeting. So there should be, there should be a transition meeting after that, right? To go from um, elementary to middle and middle to high school. There's supposed to be a transition meeting. Did okay. you have one of those? No. Then you can ask for one. Okay. <laughs> you can ask for it now. Good to know. Boy, I'm learning a lot today. That's why we have this, right? <laughs> any, uh, any questions on that? I know it's a little confusing. And if you have any questions, feel free to drop me an email and say, these are my dates, okay? And I'll be happy to get back to you. Okay, any other, then the rest is <clears throat> pretty simple. Prior to the meeting, this is what was happening with the kid. After the meeting, this is what we decided, okay? So that's where it has your primary disability. So let's say it's autism, it would have autism here. And then if it stayed that way, it would be autism again. If it's an annual, this information doesn't change. You can only really change that, well, it changes if they're moving schools, if they're moving from middle school to high school or elementary, right? But it won't change if they are just having an annual. Everything will stay the same. The only way this information can change if it's, is if with an evaluation. Does that make sense? You can't change disabilities without an evaluation. You can't change the school of attendance unless you move without an evaluation. Okay, does that make sense? You can't change your primary educational environment without an evaluation. So if necessary, a reevaluation sometimes. Yes, yes. Okay. Yep. Evaluation, reevaluation. I okay. use the terms interchangeably. Does that make sense? And you have to have, you have mandatory, you have to have an evaluation every three years. They used to call that one a triennial, which was a great name, and I loved it, and now they call everything a reevaluation. So it gets confusing. Um, but does that make sense to everybody? Any questions? Okay, and then we've got um, their grade, their gender, their age, their race, all that kind of information down here. If you have a child that does not speak English, this is an important place also. 
or if you don't speak English, this is an important so that you need an interpreter. Hopefully everybody can understand me today that if you needed one, you asked for one. Um, and but in an IEP meeting, evaluation meeting, all that, if you need an interpreter, you can ask for one. Okay. I have some clients that we do that. So school district pastor provided at no expense to you. So don't think you have to pay for it. You don't. Any questions? That's just page one <laughs> of the IEP. I know, right? If we were in person, we would break and get some more coffee and right. chat amongst ourselves a little bit. But I want yeah. you guys to get as much as possible from Roxanne. So, so I think we should just breath. keep going. Keep Take a deep breath here. Um, drink some water, some coffee, whatever. Okay, so now we're on the, sec the next page. The next page is procedural safeguards and IEP participants. So if you're a parent or have educational authority, um, educational rights, you would sign two places. You would sign at the parent signature part, and I don't have the bottom of this page, but at the bottom, well, I have the, yeah, I do, sorry. And then you would sign that you attended the meeting right here. So you sign up here saying you got your procedural safeguards or that you didn't care to get them. You can refuse them. You do not have to have them. Those of us that have been going through IEP meetings swear that we could um, wallpaper our houses with all the copies of the procedural safeguards that the school tries to give us. Um, or you can sign it here. With Now they're doing IEPs, just so you know, you do not have to go to school to attend an IEP meeting anymore. You can do it virtually. A lot of the schools are, um, most of the schools do not have rooms that are big enough to hold an IEP to do social distancing. So you sometimes they'll do a blended model where the, the teachers are there and everybody else is on um, a, a meeting, a vi virtual meeting. And so then they're doing electronic signatures or they're mailing you the page to sign and send back. So that's the difference that's going on now. There are people that have to attend the meetings. So the next slide, and it's on page nine in your handouts. The next slide is a list of the potential uh, attendees. This is from the Colorado Department of Education. I did not create this, I just re rewrote it. Um, and basically it tells you who's essential, and for IEPs, it is required by law that they make every effort to have you at the meeting. The meetings are supposed to be held at times that are convenient to you. Now, I'm sure you've all had times when they say it can only be on Tuesdays because that's when our service providers are in the building. Well, that's nice, but if on Tuesdays you have to work and you cannot attend, they have to find another day. Okay, they don't like it because they have to pay them extra. That's not your problem. If it is essential or required, right, then that person is supposed to be in the meeting. If you're in elementary school and your child is in gen ed for a good portion of the day, that gen ed teacher should be at the meeting. Sometimes they only give the gen ed teacher 15 minutes to be there. You can say that is not acceptable. 
You do not have to sign their forms that they give you, giving them permission to meet, to not be at the meeting. They have to hire or find a way to have a substitute for that teacher to attend the meeting. Their attendance is essential if you think it's essential because it is required. You can say they don't need to be there. So if you have a child that's in special ed, let's say they're in um, an SSN room, serious, um, not serious, significant support needs classroom. So they could be in an uh, autism classroom or a, a social emotional classroom or effective needs classroom, and maybe they're in there 80% of the time, then maybe having the classroom teacher is not essential. And 15 minutes is all you really need for them to be at the meeting. But it's essential for the special ed person to be there 100% of the time. So all I'm saying is don't sign papers unless you know exactly what they mean. And a lot of times it's at the convenience of the school, not yours. Now, let me, I usually say this and I forgot to say this. I get hired when the schools are not doing what they're supposed to do. So you're gonna hear me say a lot of negative things. There are schools that do this well, <laughs> but there are schools that don't. And I can't say it's on a district basis because it's not, it's on a school basis. So, and it's on a team basis. So just so you know, I'm not down and negative on all teachers. I get along with almost everybody, but it's, I want to make sure your rights are protected. That's what I'm talking about today. Okay. Yeah. That makes so sense. what you should do with this chart is go through it and highlight who needs to be at the meeting and then write down their name, their phone number, their email address and keep it handy. So you always know who to direct to. So um, if you need, for evaluations, everybody that did part of the evaluation has to be there and interpret their results. Uh, there needs to be a special education director or designee. There's typically a designee unless I attend the meeting. If I attend a meeting, then there's still a designee, but it will be somebody from the district. So if you have an advocate attend, they usually send somebody from the district, not always, Depends on your reputation. Some districts, people know me already and they don't, they don't feel like they need a, a, a director. If somebody is 15 years or older, they're saying that it's essential for them to attend. That is still something as a parent that you can say no, even though, you know, they're going to really quite require that they be there. You can help pick which sections they're there for. Okay. Um, bilingual, of course, we need them if they're a bilingual person. Um, community service agency, if they they can be invited to attend, let's say that you have a child with um, epilepsy. You can have somebody from the Epilepsy Foundation attend. If you have a child with autism, you can have somebody from autism attend, right? You can do that anytime, but um, if you, especially if they're 15 years or older, they might be working with a group called SWAP and that's allowing them to get jobs in the summer um, and teaching them about job skills, they're invited to attend. Related service providers. So when I talk about service providers, I'm not talking about your special ed teachers. I'm talking about speech language, um, uh, mental health, um, all those kind of people, um, OT, 
physical, those folks. Those are your related service providers. And again, they should be in attendance if there's, especially if there's any goals related to them or if they did an evaluation. There is, a, there will be a link in the resources that takes you to the, that takes you to the document that has this information and it's got some more information that you might want to read. Um, but I didn't, it was too much to copy. So it was easier if you guys need to go read it. But this is the bulk of what you need to know. Any questions on that? Okay. We get to move on to page three of the IEP. Well, at least my, my shortened version, right? Okay, so now we get into the fun stuff. So I'm gonna use the um, thingy again here. Make that bigger and then I can go here and go laser pointer. Oh, no, that doesn't work. Okay, I learned something new. Okay, sorry, I was going back and forth. The information on the page that's in red are the laws associated with this. So if you really wanna read the law, you can type this red piece, IDEA 300.324, parentheses A, parentheses I, strengths of, you don't have to put the strengths of child, just that first piece in Google, and it'll bring up that, several links to that, and you can actually go and read the law. So if you feel like something isn't being done correctly, that is the best place to go. And when it says, um, and they are referring here you to the federal law, not the state law. <clears throat> so I want to be clear on that. So this is the section, student strengths, preferences, and interests. This is where you want to refer to your student profile and provide input to this section. And do your best to have the team and to include your comments here and not under parent student input. The reason why I say that is you are, I hate this section, parent student input. Parent student input is not part of the law. That got added by Colorado. That's my belief. Um, the thing that you want to do is make sure that you are considered part of the team. If your input is only put in parent student input, do you think the teachers are going to read it? They're going to read what all the other teachers wrote or what's in the guts of the IEP. So your input is just as valuable as the teacher that's sitting next to you. And so is your student. So, you know, there might be some things you want to put in student input, but usually they enter, if you've got an older child for student strengths, a lot of times the special ed teacher will interview your child to get their information from them. But that doesn't mean that they ask all the questions you want them to ask or they included everything you want them to include. So you want to make sure that it really points out what your child is good at and what the um, successes they've had. Okay, so I had a student that they interviewed him, but he didn't talk about the fact that he won an award at working in a community service and he has autism and it was a big deal. So we want that reflected because that shows some strengths that they could build on and what the schools should be doing. It used to be the model is, was that you taught to a, a person's um, disability. So you taught, you tried to in, in build up their, their weaknesses. What we do now is teach to their strengths and the strengths help them compensate for their weaknesses. We'd still work on the weaknesses, but you really wanna build on a child's strengths. If they're really good in writing and they suck in math, 
And don't spend all your time trying to teach the math. Really focus on having them be a really good writer and give them compensation skills to, to do math. Does that make sense? Any questions yes. on that? Yes. Okay. No. All right, so present levels and educational performance. This is the meat of the IEP. This is where you're gonna have the evaluation information. You're gonna have their iReady scores, their district state level scores. You're gonna have observations. They're gonna have all of that. Um, in your handouts, and we'll go there in a second. I think it's on my next page. Yep, so bear with me. We'll get through this page and then we'll go to the next page. Um, and this page should have what their needs are. It should also have, sorry, it should also have where they are in their current goals. So they got goals last year, 2019-20 school year. They got a set of goals. In their, their IEP for their 2020-21 school year, those goals should be in the present levels and where they are in meeting them, okay? Have they met their goal, yes or no? If not, what's left for them to work on. That should then drive the goals, right? For this year. Does everybody get that? Okay, so that, all the needs should be written in here. And then when you come to student needs and impact of disability, this should be a summary of all the stuff that was up here. If it wasn't listed in present levels and all of a sudden you have it in student needs and impact of disability, then you don't have the right information in present levels. So let's say all of a sudden they came down here and they said, oh, student has um, ADHD and needs help with executive functioning. And nowhere in present levels did they talk about their lack of skills in executive functioning. That's not the way it's supposed to work. It needs to be mentioned here and then summarized here. And they should not just be saying, the student has autism, they have processing issues that impacts all of their education. That does not tell you what the child's needs are, right? Student needs, there should be a list. Written communication, cannot process how to write, cannot, um, you know, needs help with, needs help with, needs support in these areas, right? So that's what's supposed to be in student needs and impact of disability. <clears throat> and then, um, and if it's not listed here, then you can't have a goal for it. So if they put that, just that little summary, then how do they write the goals? Okay, does that make sense? So everything that's written in student needs and impact of disability should either have a goal or an accommodation. And then I put that in here about parent-student input, right? Get your input incorporated into the IEP, not just in the student. Because that should be the concerns of the parent. That's the way the law is written, concerns of parent, not input into the IEP. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. Now, there was a parent that was trying to read a really long IEP and was lost. And I can tell you why because it's probably poorly written. So the next thing we're gonna look at is how you can go through that IEP and make it a little bit easier to read. 
And what I would do to do this, I'm sorry, I can't find my escape key that, right now. Um, what I would do, what I do to do this, well, let me get my cursor to work. Come on, cursor. Isn't that weird? There we go. Okay. In my previous career, I was an engineer. The kind of engineer I was, was called a special factors, uh, human factors engineer, sorry, human factors engineer. And what I know, what I learned how to do was to make products easier to use. And one of the things is reading documents. If you don't put documents in an order that makes sense for people to read, you can't understand it. So I put this together and I wrote it different. It's a little bit different in your handout than the other pages. And I wrote it so that you could actually take that sheet and hand it to your IEP team, especially for a, tri uh, a triennial or reevaluation to say, this is really a recommendation that can help order, put the, the evaluation, the document in order so that we can understand it. And I actually had um, a team do this for me. And it was, it was with my client who English is a second language. She couldn't understand any of the IEP. Once it was reordered and structured, she was like, oh, it makes sense. Okay, so it's really important to have it in the right areas. So one of the things you can do is take the IEP and print it and then cut it into pieces if they won't do it for you. So that you can read it so it makes sense. Or at least read it in that order, in this order. So what you want to do is um, you want all the evaluation results together. Now they usually do that, and in some school districts, let's say the evaluation was done in 2018, so they're not due for another reevaluation until 2021. Um, so they still might put a summary of the 2018 evaluations in the current IEP, which is fine because that's the current evaluation. But they need to label it and put it all together in one place so it's easy to find. And then there should be a section that's progress made since last IEP. And that's the progress on the goals. This also tells you what to look for in that big long section that you have so you can find the pieces. So there should be a section on just the progress of the goals. It should tell, state the goal. Sometimes they don't state the goals. It should state the goal it should tell whether or not progress has been made and what that progress is. It should tell whether or not the goal was met and it should discuss why and how it should change. So if they don't do any of that, then you need to ask them to add it in there. Okay. It may be that you have two or three IEP meetings to get the IEP right. That's okay too. That's your right. All right. And then if there's any additional progress data, then put it somewhere else in additional information. That could be the class participation, STAR is an evaluation tool they use, DRAS, another one for reading level, any observations, et cetera. There's lots of different ways to collect data. iReady would go there. But that way, it's really easy to find the progress, it's really easy to find the evaluation, and it's really easy to find additional information. And my italics that I have provides guidance and wouldn't be in the IEP. So who was it that had problems reading their IEP? Was that you, Nadia? Hello? 
Is anybody there? <laughs> yeah, sorry, my mute. I had it. That's okay. I understand. Yeah, mine was just really long. And so this is actually very helpful. I think it's done well, but this has been, this is, this speaks to my type A brain a lot better than what I have. So thank you. <laughs> well, typically what they do, which is what drives me crazy, they'll take the person that, let's say they take the speech language person and the speech language person will have a section and it'll cover the last evaluation, the progress, concerns and issues, maybe additional testing. Well, how do you know which is what? Because that's not the way you want to look at your child. You want to look at the way it all fits together, right? Right. So right. That's, that's why it gets hard to read because then you have to jump back and forth between the pages to try to find the progress on the goals. Yes. <laughs> instead of it all being one place. So I'm glad that helps. So it'll give you a way to walk through it to find the right information. Okay. Anybody else have any concerns or questions on that? Okay. And then obviously this year you want to make sure again that they do determine regression. How much regression has been done because of the spring snafus? Okay. And they should be doing extra um, evaluations on that. That should then be included in the IEP. Okay. They don't have to call it a reevaluation and do a whole evaluation report. They can just do a regression testing. And then if they find they need to update the IEP, then you, then they'll have a, a meeting. Does that make sense? Everybody got that? Or you can call a meeting if you think it needs to be updated. Okay, we're on to consideration of special factors in that page. And consideration of special factors is where they put extra stuff your child needs. So if you have a child that has effective needs issues, they're on an SED, a serious emotional um, disability IEP, that's their primary diagnosis or secondary diagnosis, or they have autism as their primary or something else as primary and they have behavior issues, um, then they will have a behavior intervention plan. But for an SED primary, they have to have a behavior intervention plan. <clears throat> and um, so that has to be marked in here where it is and that they have one. Oh, sorry, there's a typo there. Um, whether or not the student has assistive technology. That used to be for anything, like if it was a computer, they put it in there. Nowadays, pretty much everybody has access so they don't always put a computer in there, but I like them to put in things that, because remember this has to be read and, apply, and applied no matter what school they go to, no matter what district they go to, no matter what state or territory they go to. So let's say you go to another state or the child go, goes to another state and they don't have in there that the child needs assistive technology or a computer to do text speech to text or text to speech. And maybe that school is old school and they don't supply computers. Then your child's gonna be at a disadvantage. But if it's written in there, then they have to supply it, okay? So I had somebody try to pull a fast one in the spring where the assistive technology team had done an evaluation and determined that the child needed assistive tech, needed speech to text and text to speech. And that 
but they were not, and this was when we were already under um, stay at home, and they weren't going to supply the computer. And I said, well, the child needs a computer to be able to do that. Well, but we can't supply that because uh, we're not in the building. I said, oh, yeah, you can supply <laughs> You can drop it off at the house. And they said, but the child already has a computer. And mom goes, well, but it's like on the verge of breaking. So we finally got them to agree to put in there that they would supply the computer if the child's home computer broke. So you really want to watch what's in your consideration of special factors and what's being uh, supplied. Okay? That's really interesting, Roxanne. So I enrolled my son in um, K-12 online school this year instead of through his brick and mortar online. Right. And his IEP says he needs, you know, he requires speech to text, text to speech and predictive um, typing. Right. And the online school says, well, you don't financially qualify for a computer through us. Well, that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> Is yeah, that because it's an online school? Now, yeah. if, if it's an online school, it depends on whether it's considered public education or private education. It's public. It's Is free it public? online public school. And they base their, if they give a computer, it's based on financial need of the family. Well, not if it's in his IEP. Um, is it considered a charter school? Nope. Okay, then they should be supplying it. Okay. I'm unless it was, unless it's part of, unless it's part of their requirements of attending the school in general. Okay. That's the only way I can say that they can get out of it because they're an online school. Mm. But if it's part of their requirements that in order to attend their school you have to have this, then they might be able to get by that. Okay. Okay. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay, any other questions on um, special factors? If you have a child that goes to a center-based school and it's not their neighborhood school, so let's say they're going to a specific school that has an autism program or a school that has a effective needs program, then the school has to provide special transportation. So that would be down here under special transportation. If they're on medication that the school has to provide or they have um, epilepsy or, um, diabetes, that the school has to be, have a health care plan, then that would be here also. If they have limited English proficiency, there should be something in here from the ELS or ELA teacher. If they have, um, they can't speak, there would be something on communication and deaf, blind, and hard of hearing, those are kind of obvious. So any questions on consideration of special factors? Is everybody looking at theirs? Does anybody see anything on their child's IEP that's a question? Okay, no. feel free to chime in. A 30 minute warning, Roxanne. Yep, I just saw that, thanks. Okay. I think we're doing pretty good. Um, I know it doesn't look like it, but I think we're doing okay. So the next ones are pretty simple. So goals, annual goals. Goals are supposed to be based on their needs, right? So if it says that the child needs, um, needs help in writing, needs support in learning how to write or in writing, then there should be a writing goal. The child needs to increase their ability to read, then there should be a reading goal, okay? So whatever it says, there needs to be a goal. 
for an accommodation. You can't make accommodations. Accommodations are only there that a regular gen ed teacher can provide. So time on tests, um, quiet space to take a test. A, a goal is something that they need direct instruction for. They need to learn how to write. They need to learn how to read. They need to learn how to do um, executive function skills. That's what should be in goal. These are the pieces that should be there in the goal. And every goal should be SMART, which means specific, measurable, attainable, results-oriented, and time-bound. Make sure that on attainable, they don't treat that as easy. Attainable should be something they have to work to achieve, not something that they can do even if the teacher's not around to help them. Everybody get that? That's important. Okay. There are resources. These are um, um, links that you can go to that give examples of goals. I won't say they're all good. I'm just saying they'll give you examples of goals. So if you need a reading goal, sometimes I go look at these and go, oh, that would be one that we could take and modify. Okay. So, oh, I forget it does it that way. Sorry, I didn't mean to make that smaller. Um, and make sure you ask how often they will be met often they will be measured. A lot of times they'll put in there that's due at the end of the, the next, you know, you're gonna look at it at the next, they have to, first of all, all goals should be met by the time you have the next IEP meeting a year later. That's kind of the, the, the signpost. However, you want them to measure along the way to see how well they're doing. Some schools will only do that once a quarter before they have to do the progress report. That is not enough to know how to adjust what you're teaching the child to make sure they're going to be able to learn it in a year. And if it is enough, then it's probably one of those easy goals. Does everybody get that? We could spend like two days on goals. Probably in my class, we're going to have, in, starting in August, we'll spend at least two hours on goals. So does a goal need to be modified depending on whether a child is receiving in-person or e-learning? That's really important too. Let's say you have a child that's going 100% e-learning and anxiety outside the home is the issue, then they may not be able to work on that goal in an e-learning environment. They might, because they won't have a way to take them to that kind of an environment, right? So it's something that you need to talk about with the team to see if something needs to be modified based on the environment that your child is learning in. And if they need both, if there's a difference, then you gotta include both in the IEP. So that if there's a difference for e-learning, when we have to, and they're doing 100% in-person right now or hybrid, then they know that when they go, if we have to go back to 100% e-learning, that it's gonna, that, that both of them are in there. Okay. All right. We are now halfway through, but the rest are fairly easy. So that sounds like we're not going to cover them, but we are. So the next is the accommodations, which I talked about, and you can refer to the Colorado Instructional Accommodations Manual. There, there's the link there, and it's also at the end. Um, and it always says it's in the process of being updated. I haven't seen it updated, but they always say that. So I don't know if it's ever gonna get updated. Um, now remember accommodations is something that can happen in a classroom. We're gonna look at that in just a second. 
Modifications. Modifications are when you're supposed to, let's say you have a child that's in the eighth grade and they're reading at a kindergarten level. Do you think they can attend gen ed classes and keep up? No way, right? So they should be providing some support and grade level support for that child to be able to do that work. If they modify the curriculum so that it does not meet the standards that are at that grade level, that's considered a modification. In Colorado, unfortunately, it has been passed down from the CDE, which is wrong, that you can only use modifications if you have an intellectual disability. You cannot qualify for an intellectual disability unless your IQ is two standard deviations below normal, below the mean, and their adaptability score is two standard deviations below the mean. So you could have a child, I had a client whose cognitive score was two standard deviations below, but their adaptive score was in the average range. So they didn't qualify for an intellectual disability, so they couldn't get modifications. I put in Colorado, because this is not really federal law, and it's not really state law, it's just practice that this child could not get modifications, and yet they were in the ninth grade reading at a second grade level. How successful will that child be? And the team was happy to live with a child would keep getting Fs and Ds. So you have to really fight to get that dealt with. It took us two years with this case, including an attorney for some of it, to get it so that the child got the right support so that they could get through and not have all Fs. And the child is actually doing really well, but. That's um, interesting because my son going into sixth grade is on a first grade reading level. Yes. Yep. And they're supposed to be working. And so one of the things that you can do is in the goals, one of the things I always ask with a child that's that far behind is how fast can we push this child? Can we do a two-year makeup in a year? Because we don't want that they're just going to get a grade level improvement because they're always going to be behind. Your child needs to see if they can see how much he can learn and try to get to a two-year two growth in a year. At least. Because he's only got, he's going into what grade? Six. So he's got six, seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth, eleventh, twelfth. He's got seven years, right? Uh -huh. So you want him to at least be able to read at an eighth grade level. But you also want him to participate in high school. So you really want that eighth grade level to happen before. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if at all possible, right? We don't want the child to get so frustrated they quit. Well, and that's already where he's at. Yeah, of course he is, because he can't keep up. So those are the tough, tough, tough cases to fight and work on. But that's what you got to do, is work to get that to happen. Okay. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. Extended school year, really quick, is they have to measure regression and compare it to other kids. And um, so there's a lot with the extended and I have a description there. I'm not going to go in that because we don't have time today. If you need help with that, let me know. But now we're not till next year. But 
If you think you want your child to qualify, then ask them to be measuring that. They don't always do it automatically. So ask them now to be measuring for extended school year. Okay, why aren't you progressing? Okay, so on the next page, we'll do this really quickly, is an example of what you would find in the accommodation guidelines from CDE. Uh, I'm gonna take um, one of these, um, provide consistency, stability, and structure daily. That's very generic. You wanna take what they have generic and make it specific. And your child won't need all of these. Your child might not need text highlighting or repeating directions. So you wanna look at what they have and see if it's applicable, but don't let the school get away with gain attention before speaking. You wanna be specific on what that looks like. Does that mean a touch on the shoulder? Does that mean coming by their desk and putting a little note to say, pay attention? Does that mean wiggling your ear? What does it mean for your child to gain attention before speaking? Because you want it to be as specific as possible because the people that are implementing the accommodations are gen ed teachers, as well as your specials teachers, right? Everybody's doing it. So it's not just your special ed teachers that are trained, all right? <clears throat> the next is state and district assessments. They should have the accommodations on here. The accommodations that you need for state and district should be the same accommodations that are your accommodations list. So if they're not, then you need to make sure that they get put on there. Even if they're not gonna take it, they still have to fill that out because they don't know when they fill this out whether or not your child's gonna take it. Okay, service delivery statement. This is where you have in your child's IEP, and if everybody can go to that section, if you have an IEP, this is where you get details about how the services are going to be delivered and how many hours or minutes are allocated to each provider. And it should detail how much time is gonna be spent by EAs or paras. So if you're, your child needs one-on-one -on -one aid at certain times during the day or monitoring or anything like that, whether or not it's one-on-one -on -one or just in the classroom, it should be listed here. Remember your EAs and paras, EA stands for educational assistant. It, they are not, the, their minimum requirement is a high school diploma. That may be all they have. They're probably not trained in teaching. They are not trained in special ed. So do not let the school say that that's how your child is gonna receive online learning. Or even in classroom learning. They should be there for monitoring and support, not teaching. It's a big bugaboo of mine right now, if you can't tell. Um, coaching and training, you can have staff, like we are talking about trauma. You can put in the IEP that the teachers will be coached or trained in trauma and trauma supports. Okay, they do not like to see that. I use the word coaching because if you use the word trained, then that means something legal to them. So I don't care if, how they get the information, if that means somebody special from the district or from raised on another school comes and coaches them, as long as they understand what it means to teach your child with autism, trauma, speech language issues, all the things that your kid has, if they need coaching and teaching on it, somebody, it needs to be in the IEP. 
if you're asking for special communication from the school, let's say you that let's say they're going to evaluate whether or not how well your child is doing on reading. Let's say for Lindsay's child, how well your child is doing on reading every week, they're going to do an evaluation. You can ask for that to be sent home. So you know how much progress your child is making every week. It's not something that is part of their have to deliver, but it's something you can ask for. And once it's in the IEP, they have to deliver it. Okay. And how you're going to communicate. Are you going to have a back and forth notebook? By the way, I hate those, but any way they're going to communicate with the school via a Google doc, that's better um, to report information back and forth. If you have a child with um, reactive attachment disorder or attachment issues, you probably want to do something like that. Once it's written up here, it now has to be put into this chart, but the chart is only supposed to be contain hours and minutes that are provided by a SPED teacher or service providers. So your EA and your um, paraNEET hours will not be in this chart. They need to be listed up here. Some schools put them both places. They're not really supposed to, but they do. You also want to look to see whether it's going to be direct or indirect. Direct means they're actually sitting down working with your child. Indirect means they're consulting the teacher to help the child. Okay. And then you, it's usually in minutes, which can be quite confusing. And then it'll say how many minutes per month, week, quarter, whatever. So that's real important to look at. Does that make sense? Any questions on that? I know I've got 14 minutes and three slides, four slides left. <clears throat> so the next one is recommended placement. <clears throat> this is where the child is gonna receive their services. This is called the least restrictive environment. And remember that it's the least restrictive environment that your child can be in, be in to be a successful learner, not the least restrictive environment for all children. The least restrictive environment for all children is general education. The least restrictive environment for my daughter was a residential placement. Okay, so those are two very, very different things. People would look at a residential placement as the most restrictive. It is the most restrictive, but for her, it was the least restrictive. It was better than being in jail or being in a mental hospital. Okay, so it's by your child. These are the general classifications, general education class 40 to 79% of the time, general education class at least 80%, a separate school or out of district placement. And now they have prior written notice, which actually puts what was decided at the meeting and any factors that were considered, and that's it. Um, what I wanna do though is then talk about the different levels of placement and I did not, oh did I? Yeah, I included this in your handouts. Um, it starts at general ed, then it goes to general ed with pullouts then you go to center-based programs, which are like your autism programs, your effective needs programs, or SED classrooms, and or SSN classrooms. And then it goes to a separate school, which could be a facility school or a private school. Okay. Just be aware that 
typically they want to get kids as fast as possible back into general education. So, and that's even true when they're way up here at a separate school. They are going to do whatever they can to move them back this direction, okay? So you have to work really hard to make sure you have all your ducks lined up to make sure if they really need to stay here, that they stay there. And usually your facility or private schools are pretty good at helping you do that. Any questions on the that? Okay, <coughs> the last but not least is um, resources. I forgot to put a title on there. These are your, this is your resources and these are actually all in your handout with these being links. So you can actually link to it. I just didn't put links on here because we didn't need them. So I have a blog post that's called Yikes at School Time. You might want to read. It gives you some ideas on how to organize paperwork and things like that. I also have a YouTube video that came from one of our meetups that you can go to um, that's called Don't Get Caught Unprepared for the School Year. And it's got lots of ideas, even on getting your kids up and ready to go. There is, um, we do meet once a month, starting in the first one will be in September. The one in September is gonna be on compensatory education, which is education to make up for regression. So, and a lawyer is going to be doing that one. Lawyer um, Catherine Newell is going to be there to present that. That'll be virtually. So you can just go to the link that's in your, your handouts and it'll take you right there and you can sign up and go. Uh, I'm also doing the IEP superhero, become an IEP superhero class um, that we talked about earlier, the webinar series. And you can sign up for that if you want even more in-depth details on IEPs. We'll spend more time on goals, accommodations, and all that kind of stuff, how to escalate, things like that. And then there's links for the departmental, um, Colorado Department of Education. I've got the IEP procedural guidance, which has that chart on um, attendees, special education facilitation. This is really important. If you can't afford, an, an, um, if you can't get anybody to go with you to a meeting and you, or you feel like your team is really disorganized and you just want somebody to monitor what's going on, you can request that a facilitator be sent from the Colorado Department of Education. They're really well trained. They know how to facilitate IEP meetings to make sure you're heard. They, make, they monitor the meeting. They take notes so that people have, all have the same notes and they make sure that the parent isn't getting run over and that they're heard and they make sure the school is heard. So they do a very well-balanced job of making sure everything's done. They cannot offer an opinion. They cannot give you guidance. They're just there to make sure the meeting runs appropriately. I've also included the link for the disability categories and eligibility, and it also has other forms there on that, their website. So you can look at the criteria for what it takes to get a certain disability. And then classification category. And then I've also included this link to the students with ADHD and Section 504 resource guide. The, um, it was put out by the US Department of Education. Even though it's for 504, it has really good information on IEPs also. And it's written in parent speak. It's not written in lawyer speak or education speak. And it does a real, because you might have a child that comes to you as a foster child that's on a 504, which means they get accommodations, not goals. 
and um, it could be really helpful and it can also help you understand the IEP in some sections because they do a good job of going, if the school is doing this, that's wrong. So <laughs> you would then have a document to refer to that's from the US Department of Education. And then if you need me, oh, there's my resources, great. Then if you need me, there I am. Everybody feels like that at any given time in an IEP meeting, even me sometimes. Um, but if you need some help, there are advocates out there. I'm one of them. And that's my contact information, as well as it's on every page, because that's my marketing spiel. Okay. And any last...